Welcome to Marvel Us. I'm your host, Tom Laurie, joined by my sister, Leona Laurie. And tonight we're talking about From 1984, directed by Robert Zemeckis and written by Diane Thomas, Romancing the Stone. Would you like to recap the plot of this film? Certainly, Tom. A young lady romances a stone. JK. That's not how I remember it. JK. JK. Uh, Kathleen Turner plays a romance novelist who's very successful professionally, but doesn't actually have any kind of love life. Her sister, Elaine, is a bit more adventurous. Oh, her, her name is Joan Wilder. Mm-hmm. Her sister is more adventurous and is married to or was married to a man and living in Colombia. Her husband was murdered and only pieces of his body have been found. And uh, she contacts Joan to say, did you receive a piece of mail forwarded by my late husband? And Joan is like, yes, I just received it. And her sister is like, I've been kidnapped and you have to bring it to Colombia in order to free me. She's been kidnapped by two expatriate Americans, one of whom is Danny DeVito, uh, who are thieves who steal antiquities from Colombia and sell them abroad. And they want the treasure map that Elaine's late husband sent for safekeeping to Joan in New York City. So Joan, ignoring her publisher, Holland Taylor, hops on the first jet to Colombia. And when she gets there, the poor thing, such a mousy woman who has just been writing with her cat in her apartment forever, uh, gets on the wrong bus after being misled by the 'er ne'er-do-well who killed her super and is also after her in the map, uh, and goes far away from Cartagena, where her sister is, and winds up in a bus accident on a rural, rural road in a jungle mountain landscape. And it turns out that this bus crashed into a broken-down vehicle full of exotic birds owned by Michael Douglas's character, Jack. And so uh, when Joan Wilder gets off the bus, she's confronted at gunpoint by the man who misled her, and Jack saves her from this encounter. And then they go on a crazy adventure through the wilderness of Columbia, where they slide down a mountain of mud And they meet a drug runner who's a huge fan of her work and helps them with one of their narrow escapes. They are pursued by little Danny DeVito in a teeny tiny car and ultimately decide that they will go after whatever's at the end of that treasure map together so they have more leverage to get her sister. And when they are successful in finding the treasure, it turns out to be a massive emerald. So uh, they and the emerald wind up back in Cartagena and... Uh, also all of the bad guys are there at the same time and there's a massive confrontation between everybody at the end of which Danny DeVito and his cousin the the kidnappers wind up being pursued by the local police and Solo the man who is like a military thug winds up being eaten by crocodiles and uh, Joan Wilder and her sister are safe and allowed to return to the United States together while romantic hero Jack 
jumps off the fort they've had their confrontation in and disappears into the water below. And when Joan returns to New York, she's a changed woman. She wears her hair down and wears flowing outfits that suggest, I'm a gal who goes with the flow. Now I am not all uptight. Mm -hmm. And she quickly turns her adventures into her latest novel. But at the end of her novel, the Jack character meets the romantic lead at the airport and they go off to sail around the world together, fulfilling his dream and his promise to her. And she lives in hope that some version of that will happen to her and lucks out when she's walking home with groceries and discovers that he has indeed purchased the sailboat of his dreams and come to collect her wearing crocodile boots made from the animal that ate the emerald at the end of their confrontation along with Solo's hand. Uh, And so she climbs a ladder up onto the boat abandoning her groceries on the New York City street aside from a bouquet of flowers that she decides to take with her. And then they make out as a truck drives the sailboat down the street, presumably to the ocean, Mm -hmm. impractically with its mast and sails Mm -hmm. up, uh, which seems like it's going to be a problem as soon as they come near any kind of power, you know, line or... Even bridge. just a gust of wind. Anything. It's a it's a, it's a nice shot, but it's impractical. Extremely. The end. Mm-hmm. Did you like it, Tommy? Have you seen it before? Uh, no, this was the first time I've seen it, and yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, a, a very uh, familiar mode for the era. The sort of mm-hmm. uh, you know, white people on an adventure in um a foreign land to steal some <laughs> steal some riches. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like, uh, it, you know, it, it, it obviously compares to Indiana Jones movies, which came out not, not long after, or maybe even right alongside it, like, mm-hmm. uh, Raiders, and also a movie I recently watched for the first time, uh, Vibes, hmm. starring, um, uh, starring Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper. What?! Yeah, it's a it's a very strange movie. It's from like the late '80s. It was right supposed to ride this sort of um, adventure movie trend slash Ghostbusters, and uh, it's about uh, psychics who are conned by Peter Falk into going to Ecuador to help him steal some riches. Um, please send me a link to that movie. It sounds amazing and I want to watch it now. Uh, but yeah, there's, you know, a lot, a lot of movies of this ilk in that era. And, uh, you know, this, like the thing, uh, that, I mean, the, the two things that surprised me about this were it takes like maybe more than an hour for the titular stone to enter the moot, like enter the plot even. Mm-hmm. Like they know they're looking for treasure, but they don't know what it is. And uh, then by the time they find it, the movie's almost over. Um, and also, it, you know, it's it's uh, like they find... Uh, what, what's the little statue they find? An like, Easter um, bunny, like yeah, from the 50s. It's, yeah, it's a... Uh, like, compared to the other movies in this genre, it's really lacking in the sort of, um, you know, culture and folklore that they usually steep whatever whatever the the core to the adventure is like you know there's no you don't get a sense of um why columbia why this jewel other than uh exotic locale and worth lots of money like you know there's no there's no myth or legend to to go along with it 
Well, I, I would say that the the military contra of the time, like all of the the stuff that's going on in South America at the time that was in the U.S. news all the time, and the drug runners that are at play in different regards in the movie, the corruption in Colombia that was, you know, blown up in the U.S. news, like, you know, the there's like a thriving industry. Uh, I don't know if this is still true, but I know at the time it was one of the things you were warned at about of uh, Americans being kidnapped for ransom. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things make sense. Like the way that this particular treasure is couched is um, Elaine's husband has been murdered by Zolo the butcher. Um, And Danny DeVito, I think is the one who explains that he is, um, he has the title of like director of antiquities, but that he's basically yeah, like a mob boss in Colombia. Um, and Danny DeVito and his cousin robbing the country of antiquities and the part where Joan and Jack come across a crashed drug runner plane airplane mm-hmm. full of marijuana that's been left behind and allude to the cocaine trade and then meeting Juan, the drug runner who's her fan, like, I think that's the culture they steeped it in, uh, instead of saying it's ancient culture. And that's why it's a little Easter bunny statue from, Mm -hmm. you know, the fifties probably is because the implication and the map looks like this too. Like it looks hand drawn and recent. It it looks like this is not a story about, you know, an ancient treasure that's being unearthed, but rather something that probably isn't a stolen Guatemalan antiquity so much as something like that some other drug kingpin uh, hid in a cave. Yeah, they don't go into the backstory much, but that's not really the point. It's supposed to be like a romance novel come to life in an 80s comedy action setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about it, like it in comparison to vibes, because I'd seen that so recently. And that's, you know, still very... um you know, uh, white people uh, projection of this uh, fantastical element onto uh, South America, but it is way more invested in, like, in Ecuador as, like, a locale and uh, a a culture, even, you know, probably not um, super, super uh, faithfully. Mm -hmm. Like, it made me wonder if there's, like, a correlation, especially in this era between... Uh, the depiction of a South American country uh, related to its acquiescence to capitalism. Like, if you got to be a nice sort of, like, touristy kind, like, oh, isn't this quaint touristy destination if um, you had installed a, uh, you know, capitalist, neoliberal uh, uh, democracy or versus... Uh, you know, somewhere like Colombia, which until, like, I think uh, the late 80s or early 90s was basically a banana republic where literally the Chiquita Banana Corporation control, controlled the government there via, uh, you know, their influence over the supposed actual government and the CIA's influence uh, as well. Um, if, uh, if, if that's the sort of thing that influences... Because also, like, you bring up the kidnappings, that that was uh, a, a real concern that they filmed this in Mexico, 
they were going to film it in Colombia, but because the kidnappings were such an issue at the time, they decided to go with uh, Mexico instead. Sensible. Um, you picked this movie to pair with Ant-Man and the Wasp because of uh, Michael Douglas. Any other reasons or anything that stands out after watching it? Well, Tom, I'm glad you asked. Um, I don't remember a ton of what Ant-Man and the Wasp is about. It turns out that was a forgettable film. Um, I remember glimpses of it, but I, I will say that the parts that I do remember are consistent with the dynamic between Jack and uh, Joan Wilder in this, where it's like that whole, uh, these two are on an adventure and things are getting hairy and that's kind of bringing them together kind of feeling and where mm -hmm. it's like comedy action um, and so even though the characters in Ant-Man and the Wasp don't parallel the characters in this very closely, like, you know, it's not like g goofy criminal turned superhero and sassy mm -hmm. boss babe. Um, but, you know, the way that the romance plays out is similar. And the, the thing that really made me want to watch this is, you know, that I love the anti-aging technology that they use in the Ant-Man movies when they're taking you back to Michael Douglas's, you know, middle years. Uh -huh. And um, this is the first film that I thought of when when we saw it. I mean, I know that he was so prolific in the 80s that... They had tons to work with, but this is the one that I thought of where I just wanted to see his young self on screen from the era at which they approximately they would have taken a lot of the facial cues that they used in both Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. And I was satisfied on that front. Did you think it was a satisfactory pairing? Yeah, I mean, uh, not a ton of... Um... Like, I, <laughs> I also don't have a, you know, it's, it's a, I feel like it's everyone trying to steal the shrunken um, laboratory or something like that. Uh, it's, a, I don't know, it's a, it's a very nothing plot in that movie. Instead of Danny them. DeVito, you get a lady who phases in and out of reality. Uh, you get, you get Walton Goggins. Um, I think huh. he's probably the closest to a, a Danny DeVito analog. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, like... But yes, I do think um, that uh, both Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp follow a similar um, rom-com trajectory for the main relationship there. What I liked about this film, Tom, on rewatch, I did feel this held up. Like, you characterizing it as part of a trend of white people have an adventure in a foreign land. Yeah, that's true. It's 80s. But there were some things that surprised me in a very satisfactory way. Uh, this movie totally passes the Bechdel test and the nope friendship test. All of the women in this movie are allies. Um, I like that the moment towards the end where Joan is being attacked by Solo and calling for Jack to come and save her, uh, calling for Jack to come and save her, she saves herself when it comes down to it and then mm -hmm. turns to him for like a place to release the emotion of that moment. Um, but you know, and then the message that he has for her after that is you're going to be all right. You always were, which especially for an early eighties, 
you know, or any time in the past kind of action movie. This is a female-led action movie. She may be kind of a wuss at the beginning, but she's the star. And, you know, it's her her journey that leads the action throughout, and she's the one who gets to have essentially the last word at the end. So there are a lot of ways that it deviates from the norm for the era uh, and still is better than a lot of the stuff that gets made today. Um, you know, she's wearing impractical shoes that are appropriate for walking New York City but and probably the streets of Cartagena at the beginning, and he chops the heels off of them. They're not high heels. They're, lo- they're low heel shoes um, to make them more practical for walking in the jungle. But I appreciate that the first opportunity they have to replace her shoes with, with new shoes, they replace them with flats. And I did think it was funny, like, how much of a point is made of uh, how bad those heels are for walking in, like, rocky mud but he's wearing like cowboy boots and it also seems like is repeatedly rolling his heels on, on, on the, the rocky and muddy terrain, which, you know, never commented upon, but, uh, also like, man, doesn't seems like, uh, there aren't a lot of shoes that would be good for this terrain other than like hiking boots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's as far as like the, the points that really, irk me in a film this one didn't hit any of my buttons and also i remember dad really liking it and Mm. there are some moments that he just got such a kick out of the whole thing with the drug runner who's a huge fan of joan wilder's Mm -hmm. books and who has the little mule truck Mm -hmm. that he drives crazy through the streets of his village and like the whole he's taking her on a scenic tour while outrunning the militia at the same time and saying things like, see that fence? That's where my mom was born. Mm -hmm. See that tree? My brother planted that tree. And, you know, just having fun through the whole thing. Daddy really liked that whole sequence. And, you know, so it's, it's something that I remember fondly from our, my childhood in particular, you were probably too little to remember him watching it and enjoying Mm. it. Um, yeah, yeah, I liked uh, them finding the uh, drug smuggler plane, mm-hmm. which was piloted by the like a dead a dead head, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> with an old um, Rolling Stone, old copy of a uh, Rolling Stone that uh, Michael Douglas reads, where he learns that the Doobie Brothers broke up, <laughs> and then them using just uh, like pounds of weed as as a uh, uh, campfire fuel. Yeah, that was another moment where the movie diverged from the trope as well, because the two of them are, they drink an entire bottle of, like, Jim Beam while they're sitting next to a bonfire made of weed. Um, They're wasted, and uh, she asks him what his middle initial T stands for, and he says, trustworthy. And she goes, instead of, like, really laughing like if you've been sitting in a cloud of weed for you know two Mm. hours or whatever at that point your reaction is not going to be the you know giggly sort of thing and i was like oh kathleen knew how to play high (laughs) because she had she knew what she was doing um and then they have a moment where they get really close to each other like uh maybe they're gonna kiss and she kind of catches herself and then face plants when she passes out 
and is just like out with her face in this bag. Mm. And it's so not glamorous. Like there's nothing about that moment aside from like, are are we going to kiss? And then her backing off and being like, no. And then she's just out on her face. Mm. That is, you know, not what you would normally do with a sexy female lead in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. I liked it. Yeah, I like her liquor cabinet full of uh, tiny uh, mini bar bottles of bottles of booze. Like I think they do a they do a really good job at the beginning of establishing her character as this like, you know, sort of uh, shut in writer who uh, is is not looking looking for adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, and they don't. There's nothing about her. That is like the she's all that type makeover. You're never supposed to think she's unattractive. She just doesn't take care of herself and is shy and doesn't want to go out and, you know, lives vicariously through the characters in her books instead of, you know, wanting to be engaged in what New York City has to offer. Mm -hmm. That's where her career is and that's where her apartment and her cat is. Um, But, you know, after she, when she gets to Columbia, I felt like, it's very realistic that when you leave, you know, like in literature, when you go into the wilderness, society's rules don't apply is like a literary trope. And that definitely happens here. But I think that happens in real life, too. Like when you leave all of the people who have expectations of you behind and are completely in uncharted territory you have the freedom to behave differently. And, you know, in this case, she also has the necessity to behave differently if she's going to succeed in helping her sister. And I like that Holland Taylor's character when she's leaving is like, you're unequipped for this thing. You can't do this. Mm -hmm. And she's like, take care of my cat. I'm going to go. It suggests that like, even in that first moment, like you never hear her saying she's not up to doing the thing her sister has asked for or that she's not up to the adventure. You know, what she's not up to is the single scene in New York City. That's the only thing that she says no to before she goes on this adventure. And all of her characters, like the ones that we have access to in the film, are like women living on the prairie who know how to throw a knife and, and survive in the Old West. Like, that that is her fantasy, and she lives it. And she may be clumsy while she's doing it, but she isn't hesitant at any point throughout the film in a way that I found both believable for what I what she showed us of that character and refreshing. Yeah, I like I like when she and her publisher are at the uh, at the restaurant scoping out all all the single dudes. How her publisher just like listing off wimps and losers, like uh, <laughs> what that casting call must have been like for all those guys to. <laughs> come in to audition for nameless wimp or loser <laughs> yeah i also wondered what um her sister elaine's life must have been like for like like not not only the glimpses we get of it while she's uh in columbia of like driving her uh shelby cobra and getting bullet in the face by a child but um when she uh when she uh when she's being held uh uh, kidnapped by Danny DeVito and his his cousin, and she uh, calls Joan for help. And Joan's so ready to blow her off, even though she already knows that uh, Elaine's husband has been killed and dismembered. <laughs> like 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 to 
to to still think that whatever whatever trouble she is she's in she's uh exaggerating like uh really really paints a paints a picture of what their relationship must have been like before this yeah i really like that how how little time we spend with elaine the story does not get tangential into her life we don't get distracted by what her deal is the little hints that they give us both that the sisters are very close and very committed to each other and that elaine is kind of a drama magnet um Mm. you know you you get the picture without needing more information than they give you about her and i like that um (laughs) in every scene with uh oh uh, ralph 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 Ralph. and ira the uh the two um you know american hucksters in columbia uh in every scene with ira and a bunch of crocodiles he always says look at those snappers <laughs> like, <laughs> even when he is about to be fed to the alligators or the crocodiles yeah i kind of like that they're americans who are the kidnappers as well you know yeah, no, i think there's like multi and like uh that um danny devito whenever he's interacting with like uh zola or the the uh, Colombian uh, police that he's desperately trying, like not just because he's a criminal, but because he knows that they will not treat him kindly as an American. That uh, you know, it, it's it's clear that there's no no love lost between the uh, Colombian officials and pr- wealth seeking Americans. Yeah, I think it would have been easy in that era too to have all of the um, stereotypes of the Latin American drug runner, corrupt military figure and kidnapper play out. And so it was nice that there was some relief in that landscape in that the kidnappers were American thieves and that the drug runner was a super nice guy and a huge fan. And like, you know, that they, that the only guy who, they leaned into the trope. They did it in a pretty cartoonish and over the top fashion where, you know, you, it it didn't feel like this is what Colombians are like at any point with the negative, uh, depiction. It felt like this, that guy seemed like a bond villain more than like, you know, a Latin American stereotype to me. He looked, he looked like they pulled a little bit from, you know, well, I, I mean, honestly, I can think of like several Bond villains that they pulled inspiration from and Castro and had him be like, you're going to look sort of like a, a military Latin American thug guy who smokes a cigar, but your black gloves and your mustache and your eyes and the way you use a knife, it's basically going to be like a Bond villain who is a hybrid with this. So it, it, it felt like, I mean, for the era in particular, it, they could have gone in a very different direction with that easily. Given given his role and his reputation, his I think uh, like one of the things I read that was funny, especially after watching the movie, was that um, I think it was Paul Newman turned down the the lead role because he he didn't like all the senseless violence. Hmm. And I mean, like that was the thing that stuck out to me the most was just how how relentless the gunfire is in this movie considering that absolutely no one gets shot like none of the good guys get shot none of the bad guys get shot everyone is shooting at each other through the whole thing yeah and like the only person that dies 
that you see die on like uh, Elaine's husband is already dead and like that's you know the the threat that's looming is that oh man this guy died so bad you don't even want to die that bad but, but the only person we see die um through most of the movie is the superintendent at at Jones building when uh, Zolo stabs him mm-hmm. with it with with his little switchblade which weirdly it continues being his menacing weapon is just this little switchblade um and then Zolo at the end when he gets knocked into the uh, crocodile pit but uh and and, th- and that part especially is right after an extremely long I, I mean I guess you'd call it a gun battle it's a lot of people shooting at each other but nobody get, nobody gets hit like not even uh, superficial grazing or flesh wounds just like so much gunfire for nobody ever to get hit. It, it was very strange. Well, I don't know if you saw this in your research, but it's the same cast they used for the stormtroopers. Stormtroopers get killed all the time, though. Like, yeah, you, but they can't you, hit anything. No, yeah, but no, the expect, whole cast like, was stormtroopers. That was a thing. I was, ex- <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> like, I was expecting um, uh, Jack to shoot some of the shoot, shoot some of Zolo's troops or some of the uh, the. Uh, guys who are working for ira and ralph to shoot someone or get shot like one of those guys of... does get shot and falls does off he... the fort yeah maybe man if so he's like the one mm-hmm. and uh it's is it's very i don't know because none of them are even you know slightly characters so it's uh it's not like uh we got we were we're attached to any of them they're all just there to shoot and be shot at mm-hmm. it's very strange that that um they don't get shot mm-hmm. departing from this line of conversation if that's okay with you i want to highlight sure. another thing i love in this film another moment where it deviates from expectation and tropes is as uh joan and jack are digging up the treasure and they spent the night together the night before and she's loosened up and lightened up and she's glowing with her uh feelings for him she says to him jack you're the best time I ever had instead of I love you or anything like that. I love that line. And he says, I've never been anybody's best time before. You know, it's just like a refreshing exchange. I, you can tell that it was written by a woman. I, I didn't know that before you said it. I don't feel surprised at all. Yeah. And it's funny that like their relationship and his seeming like, like it's during parts of it, it seems like a conscious attempt at seduction that that winds up being separate from from the scheme ultimately that like like it's weird because like uh as soon as as soon as they figure out what what you know the deal with the map is he everywhere they go he's asking for a xerox machine mm-hmm. um so you keep expecting this that someone's gonna get double crossed and that you know the real map will be delivered but ah they've got a xerox so they can get to the treasure first or whatever Mm -hmm. that never pays off they never xerox the map but that uh like when when they finally get to um you know a a a a decent sized uh village like little city and uh are able to relax a bit that like where where they first sleep together where they dance together their relationship really really blooms that it seems like maybe he's doing this to, you know, like, uh, it's even, Danny DeVito even accuses him of it, that, like, oh, this is all part of the con, that he's, 
you know, convincing you that this was all your idea to to go along with him to look for the jewel. But when they're when they're in bed together, you see him fishing the map out from between the 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 mattress and the box spring to put it back in her bag as if he had been planning on stealing the map and and sneaking off with it but that when she was like nah i want to go on this adventure too that he you know reconsidered that the seduction wasn't part of his ultimate plan to steal the map and and go go find the the stone on his own or at least wasn't the main plan yeah, I get the impression. I always interpreted that as, like, he's trying to get her to go after the treasure, and she's declining. And so he wants to photocopy the map so that he can go after the treasure. But his intention isn't to cut her out. It's just not to let the opportunity mm-hmm. go unexplored. And the map is the thing that she's been asked to bring to her sister, so as soon as she says, okay, I'm in for the treasure hunt, he has no need to go behind her back anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, that wasn't his intention ever. And, uh, you know, but also Danny... that his entire scheme wasn't to get her to say, yeah. I want to go on the treasure hunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny DeVito accuses him of that and plants a seed of doubt in her heart that lasts hardly any time at all because he yeah, does meet it, up it with her in Cartagena. Really in. Yeah. And so the fact that he met up with her there, when she goes back to New York and he hasn't appeared there, she continues to hold out hope that he will at some point. But, you know, it doesn't seem like she's put her life on pause over it or changed anything. She immediately turned their adventure into a profitable novel that her Mm -hmm. publisher says is the best one yet. So, you know, it's I think it's about as good as you can do for a romantic adventure comedy where... It stays within the lines of that genre, but bucks a lot of the tropes that go with it. Although, not to, you know, be too much of a stickler for the logic of a 80s adventure movie, it is a little weird that she's like a world-famous, best-selling romance author in an era where that would have been, like, huge fucking money, you know, not like... Like if you're, you know, if you're a, a, if you're a published romance author in the '80s, you're making, you're not selling, you know, two dollar books on Amazon or on Amazon digitally or whatever. You're, you're uh, making a living. That um, his whole his whole thing is wanting to buy this boat. Could have avoided all all of this trouble. She'd been like, hey, I'll buy you a boat. I've got money. Like uh, we don't need to risk life and limb to go find find a jewel and uh, maybe get killed by the Colombian government or unscrupulous American gangsters or whatever it's a uh, you know it's it's a lot a lot of trouble for what's ultimately a money problem well it didn't bother me because she offers him what is implied to be all of the money she has on her in travelers checks and they are having their adventure in Colombia in a pre-digital era. So, you know, so much of the action is driven by them trying to get to a phone, Mm -hmm. you know, that like, I think that at that point, it wouldn't have been the obvious solution to say, no, I can wire you money. But especially once they, uh, meet up with, um, with Juan and he, and, uh, pay off the setup that, Oh, your books are so popular in Latin America or whatever that, uh, it would have been like, Oh, she really is, um, 
a rich and famous author. Yeah, but I think at the moment where they strike their deal, there's no reason for either of them to think that it's going to be no, yeah, she's totally satisfactory for for her to say, I can get you later, and him to be like, I believe you, you know, so, and I, and I, you know, I don't think that, like, yeah, she probably was doing well. She has a New York apartment with multiple rooms, <laughs> so that's got to cost a lot. Mm-hmm. There's also a um, weird little prophetic line when they find the cave where the uh, emerald, the, the stone is hidden. Then Danny DeVito sneaks up on him with a gun and is like, uh, move it before Batman comes. And uh, uh-huh. they're in a cave and, you know, a number, uh, I guess almost a decade later, he would be playing the penguin in a Batman movie. Less than a decade. Batman's 1989. No, but he's in Batman Returns, which is, oh, okay. what, like 92 or 93? Okay, yeah, gotcha. So, Leona, is there anything from this movie you'd like to see in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Yeah, Tom. Every single thing that I said about when they defied tropes about a female-led action movie is stuff that I would like to see in the MCU. Um, I don't think I'll get nearly as much satisfaction from Black Widow when it finally drops in terms of subverting my expectations with footwear, how dirty you get when you are actually having an adventure in the jungle, mm-hmm. um, saying to a man you've got real chemistry with, you're the best time I ever had, instead of like, I have emotional feelings for you mm-hmm. and would like a long-term relationship, and I'm sorry about how I can't give you babies because my womb makes me evil. Mm-hmm. Lack of womb. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've, 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 I mean... I, I suspected, and now that it's been like, um, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to creep up on a year since that movie was supposed to actually come out, mm. uh, long suspected that the whole idea with the Black Widow movie was going to be a, a mantle pass since they killed um, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow, and she's probably way too expensive at this point to, mm-hmm. to bring back in any meaningful way, that they're introducing Florence Pugh as like some other member of that uh you know russian ballet assassin organization was it like the red room or some shit like that mm-hmm. um to you know basically take her place as the black widow in uh subsequent movies yeah i i love how dirty joan is for most of this movie you know she uh is in the rain waiting for a taxi to take her to the airport and then um, dirty and disheveled from her journey when she gets on the wrong bus and is dusty and travel worn when she meets Jack. Then they walk through the rain where her outfit is wilting while she's sliding around in the mud in her bad shoes. And then they literally get caught in a mudslide and Mm -hmm. go sliding down a mountain and land in a mud puddle yeah, uh, the first thing they do together. Yeah, it's like right muddy. at the beginning. And then she's in that muddy outfit for the next 40 minutes until they get to the little village where they finally get a bath and she gets new clothes. They both get new clothes. They spend one night together clean. And then the next day they start the phase of their adventure that takes them over a waterfall and through the jungle and digging in the mud And then she's not clean again until the very end when she's in New York. And Mm -hmm. the disheveled, bedraggled mud 
look uh, is appropriate to all of the things that have happened to her and is a rarity mm-hmm. in the MCU where, you know, they look more than like zhuzhed, you know, like, yeah. oh, there's a rip on your thigh now and you're zhuzhed. You don't look like you've been through hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd like to see that. Like, let those ladies wear flat shoes and get dirty um and this movie passes the Bechdel test and the nope friendship test without even trying like there's there's not a hint of animosity between the lead character and the other women and I I know from the ads in that Black Widow movie that there's some kind of tension between her and her other lady family mm-hmm. members Surrogate in Russia. Stuff, yeah. yeah, like, whatever it is. like. Well, actually, there was some degree of trying because they did some uh, rewrites and reshoots after the test screenings, and that's where that whole intro segment with her, her publisher comes in of, like, you know, setting, setting her, uh, you know, like, which I think is ultimately, like, a lot of the most important stuff in the movie is establishing her her character and and, mm-hmm. and the stakes and stuff and uh, I think yeah it really adds a lot to it. Yeah. Anyway, how about you, Tom? Anything you'd like to take from this? Aside from Michael Douglas, he's already taken. Hmm. Um. I like how much of it is just the two of them. Like you know that like even stuff like Ant Man and the Wasp where a romance is supposedly core to it it's uh it still feels so peripheral to the action set pieces where it's Mm -hmm. like you know it's so much of them getting split up to go do this or that on their own which is even kind of counter to how ant-man and the wasp are like established in the first ant-man where it's like that you know that uh the uh michael douglas uh michelle pfeiffer ant-man and wasp were partners in Mm -hmm. their uh escapades in you know the 60s and 70s or whatever and that um i I don't i don't think they're utilized that well as a duo Mm -hmm. in uh the movies especially with how much they want to lean on him doing giant man stuff it's like it it feels it feels like they've um sort of uh lost the plot with the uh shrinkiness as the power like mm. that uh they they need to they need to figure out how how those two characters work together better and how their relationship is the core of the mov- the movie mm-hmm. you have any final thoughts it was nice to have a movie hold up you know mm. like so much of the stuff that we've watched that i've seen before is is boring on rewatch or dated in some way that's uncomfortable. And, you know, this one and the towering inferno are the two that we've watched recently where I, I sincerely enjoyed them Mm -hmm. while watching them for this, having seen them both repeatedly and, you know, continued to feel the tension of the moments that they wanted me to. And, you know, enough time has passed since I, since I saw this that it, there wasn't a lot that I was anticipating, uh, as we went through it, but even the parts that I was anticipating, I was anticipating with pleasure. Like when they get to the village where they're going to meet Juan, I was like, Oh, I really like this part, Mm. you know, instead of like, Oh, 
you know, there's no surprise for me here. And I, I hope that I find the language at some point for what the difference is between the things that losing the surprise factor kills the pacing for me. You know, like, I always think of Guardians and how much I liked it the first time and how much less I like it on rewatch and with the sequel where it's just like, you know, ugh, I know what you're uh-huh. going to do. And with something like this that I've seen, you know, over and over since it came out, to still be able to enjoy it and feel delighted by it, even if I'm not being surprised by it. I I really am grateful for that and would like to have more film experiences like that. Yeah, uh, another neat thing I forgot to mention, this was the first uh, Robert Zemeckis movie where the score was done by uh, Alan Silvestri, hmm. who um, does a score for Back to the Future and all of the Captain America movies and all the Avengers movies. And this, uh, like, he he's like... Um, Zemeckis' go-to guy. Like, he scored all of his movies after this. He That's not the only power team that came out of this, because Kathleen Turner, Michael Douglas, and Danny DeVito uh, did more projects together. There's a sequel to this film. They did The War of the Roses, and I feel like there's at least one more that the three of them collaborated on. Yeah, it's actually kind of a sad story with the sequel. Um, this was Diane Thomas's like, breakout like this was her first screenplay she sold you know like 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 the start of her career and then uh she bought a porsche and she and her boyfriend died in a car accident while the sequel was in production oh that is very sad jewel of the nile yeah it was meant to be a trilogy oh as with so many things in the 80s hmm I remember Jewel of the Nile being distinctly not as good as Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone. Yeah, I heard it was not bad, but not great. Anyway, do you have any final thoughts, Thomas? Look at those snappers. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>